Hello, everyone, and welcome to this part two of the Western Conference NBA Offseason Recap Edition of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear, and this episode will go from the New Orleans Pelicans all the way down to the Utah Jazz. Again, the part two of this Western Conference Offseason Recap Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Clear. You can follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. So, the first team, as I mentioned, the New Orleans Pelicans. And the New Orleans Pelicans near pretty much had the perfect offseason under new executive vice president of basketball operations David Griffin, new GM Trajan Longdon, new vice president of basketball operations Swin Cash, brought in new training staff. This franchise under David Griffin at the helm of their basketball operations operation have rebooted this organization and given it an incredible outlook for the future and did so through a perfect offseason. So let's look at this offseason. They absolutely did a phenomenal job with trades, with their draft picks, with their mixing of veterans and young players. They're super deep at every position. They have salary cap space moving forward in the future. Just an excellent, excellent job. Starting with the Lakers trade. So they now, based off of the draft capital that they acquired from the Lakers, the 2021 first, if it's in the top seven, if not unprotected in 2022, a pick swap in 23, unprotected in 24 with the option to defer that pick until 2025. These picks could all be pretty valuable and in some cases significantly valuable because you have to look at it for this Lakers team moving forward. Now, of course, any time that the Lakers have salary cap space and have the ability to add a major free agent piece in the future, They are an attractive destination. That is just a fact. LeBron James, assuming he were to pick up his player option in the three years remaining on his contract, would finish up with the Lakers in 2021 and 2022. So the pick swap in 23 and the unprotected pick coming in 24 or 25 could be really, really valuable. And not just that draft compensation, but also getting pick four from the Lakers this year. I'll get into that in a second. The Lakers, the Pelicans pretty much control the Lakers draft for the next seven years or next six years. You look at the players they receive in the trade Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, and Josh Hart. I talked more in depth about this trade. From both perspectives on the podcast I did specifically focusing on the Anthony Davis trade, you can go back uh, at past episodes and check out that podcast reaction episode I had. But looking at it, Brandon Ingram, you look at their roster composition, he's positioned to be their solution and answer at the three for the long term. The question for me that gets interesting is, it's a matter of what does that second contract end up looking like for Brandon Ingram after this season ends? I think it's very interesting with the player that he is, 
with the potential health concerns, with the Pelicans long-term building out their roster and their cap sheet. It's very interesting to see what that contract may look like. Again, talked about this more on the Anthony Davis trade recap podcast episode I did back in June. Lonzo Ball. I still like Lonzo Ball a lot. I think next to Drew Holiday right there, that is the best defensive backcourt duo in the NBA when they're deployed out there together. And yeah, I know a lot of people are not crazy about Ball. He's not a good three-point shooter. He's not a good free throw shooter. But his size and his defensive ability and his really elite passing and playmaking ability and his ability to get to the rim, these are all incredibly valuable traits. And these are all traits that with the right assemblance of players around him could be very valuable for a winning contending team. And we talk about, or I just mentioned, the uh, surrounding players around him being conducive to accentuating those skills. I think that is what is the case with this New Orleans Pelicans team. I don't think there's a better running mate for Alonzo Ball backcourt than Drew Holiday. You have a guy in Drew Holiday who is one of the most underappreciated players in the entire NBA, who plays at a near all-NBA level every single year. Guard is just too deep of a position, but he's a scorer. He can pass. He can rebound. He can shoot threes. He can play on the ball. He can play off the ball. He can defend at a high level. Drew Holiday is one of the best all-around players there is in the NBA. And to have that type of player next to a guy in Lonzo Ball who has his weaknesses but his significant positives also. When they are out there together, again, as I said, the best defensive backcourt in the NBA, and I think Lonzo Ball really has the chance to shine with the Pelicans long-term. For Josh Hart, I look at Josh Hart, he's a very nice bench piece for this team moving forward. A guy who can come off the bench and score, who can shoot, who can play defense at the two. That is a piece that you like to have, regardless of what team you are especially since there is still, I think, some room for growth in Josh Hart's game. So I really like getting him in there as well. We mentioned pick four that they got from the Lakers in this past draft this past June, turning pick four into pick eight, pick 17, pick 35, what likely ends up as Cleveland's 2021 and 2022 seconds, and they shed their sole bad contract in the expiring... 12.7 mil that Solomon Hill had coming to him this year. And with those picks, we look at pick eight, Jackson Hayes. Now, when I did some of my pre-draft podcasts, looked at the prospects before the draft, I wasn't crazy about Jackson Hayes. And boy, was I wrong. When you look at Jackson Hayes, the athleticism that he possesses, especially for someone at his position, is off the charts. And the ability to get up and down the floor so quickly, to be so athletic and so agile, and then to be able to be this really incredible vertical spacer where he is this consistent above-the-rim, rim-running lob threat, that's a really unique type of player to... Have a player who runs the floor and is athletic like a wing or a guard, who is ridiculously long, is huge, 
who can be this incredible above-the-rim threat at all times and provide incredible vertical spacing for you. And then on top of that, you add in his ability to be a top-tier rim protector on the defensive side of the ball, and then you factor in the fact that you're pairing him in a front court with Zion Williamson, you're going to consistently have a ridiculous vertical spacing lob threat at all times. Those two guys next to each other are both so unique as far as the type of players they are and their skills and their athleticism and their vertical ability at the positions they play. I think the duo of Jackson Hayes and Zion Williamson, that's a really difficult matchup for other teams just based off of the athleticism and the speed and the above-the-rim threat. That's just a unique pairing that I think is going to be a very good one long-term for this Pelicans team. Jackson Hayes, to me, again, he's this super unique prospect and has the ability to be a difference maker on both sides of the ball with an athletic ability that really no one at the five can match. And I think that's something that's very valuable and makes him a very, very intriguing and valuable prospect for the Pelicans. With that being said, for this specific season, Jackson Hayes is someone who is raw. He is someone who is more of a long-term, I don't want to say project, but he's a guy who is going to take some time to develop into his fullest capability and potential. So he's more of a long-term piece. I'm not sure how much I see him playing this year. Again, a bit raw, needs some time to develop and season and develop into the best uh, player he can be. This year, I don't see him being a big factor for this Pelicans team. Then we get to pick 17, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Naw. I had said this when I talked about the draft, and I talked about it in the Eastern Conference podcast. If the Celtics had picked Nikhil Alexander-Walker at 14, I thought they would have had the best draft in the league. Getting Naw at 17, he's one of my favorite prospects in this draft. He can play on the ball as your primary Um, ball handler, your facilitator, your playmaker, your um, high-tier passer, or he can play off the ball. He's got good size and length so that he can be a good defender at both guard spots. He can shoot the ball. Again, he's a very good passer and a good playmaker. So I think long-term to me, this is a guy who has the talent and the ability and the skills to be a starter in the NBA. And it's a testament to how good of a job the Pelicans have done this offseason where, you know, it's a bit crowded in front of Nikhil Alexander-Walker for minutes this year. But again, size and length is there. The ability to play on or off the ball is there. The ability to guard ones or twos at a high level is there. The ability to be a good passer, to shoot the ball, it's there. Everything you could want in a combo guard is there. And I think that Nikhil Alexander-Walker is going to be a very good and productive NBA player for a long time. So to come out of 8-17, if you're the Pelicans, and to get Jackson Hayes and Nikhil Alexander-Walker, that is huge. That is a huge win for the Pelicans. Then we go to pick 35, which they also got from Atlanta in that trade down. Um, D.D. Lozada, who they're going to have play in Australia this year, in Summer League, Looking at him as a wing, kind of as a swingman type who can score, I think there's promise there with him. And I think he'll be a nice bench piece for this team over the long term. 
Obviously not for this season because he's not on the team. But long term, I think he's a nice scoring bench piece for the Pelicans. I mentioned Solomon Hill shedding his contract. That's the only bad contract the team had on its books. Allowed them to create more space to make the moves they made. Added what will end up being two high second round picks because they'll get Cleveland's 2021 and 2022 second round picks because Cleveland owes their first to Atlanta this year, protected top 10. Cleveland's probably the second worst team in the league right now. That pick's going to convey as a 2021 and 2022 second, both of which should be very high in the second round. So to turn pick four into 8, 17, 35, and two Cleveland future seconds, and therefore have turned Anthony Davis and combining those two trades, Anthony Davis and Solomon Hill's contract into Jackson Hayes, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, D.D. Lozada, Cleveland's 2021 and 2022 second-round picks, Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Josh Hart, Lakers' first-round pick if it's in the top seven in 2021, if not unprotected in 2022, a pick swap in 2023, and an unprotected first from the Lakers in either 2024 or 25. What a haul. What a haul. And we saw it with Memphis, too, in this part one of the podcast where I talked about their ability to snowball assets off of the initial trade. The Pelicans did just that with the second trade resulting from the original Anthony Davis trade. So between the Anthony Davis trade and the draft, the Pelicans did an incredible job. We then get into free agency. J.J. Redick at two years at $26.5 million. To give yourself a guy who, as we've seen at the Sixers, provides you a great veteran presence who can shoot threes at an elite rate. He can play a lot of minutes for you. Meaningful minutes in the playoffs can start for you. Has a great effect on your young guys in the locker room. And you got him at a reasonable rate in terms of dollars in terms of years, a superb signing. And whether, to, to me, you know, you look at, I mentioned the Drew Holiday-Lonzo Ball combo. The Drew Holiday-JJ Redick combo, I think that is a very nice combo. Probably ends up being their starting backcourt. Drew Holiday and JJ Redick is a very nice backcourt right there. Um, Nicolo Melli, who they signed from Euro from the Euro League at two years for $9 million, can provide scoring for them as a stretch four option off the bench. I think that could sneakily be a nice um, value signing and add right there. They brought back Darius Miller at two for $14.25 million. Year two is non-guaranteed, so more or less, it's one year at $7.25. I think to me, what that looks like to me is that is salary that can be very useful in a potential trade should they want to acquire talent towards the deadline. And if not, it's more depth and a guy who can shoot threes off the bench if he's playing. Then Derek Favors. At the draft, in addition to all the picks I just mentioned, New Orleans at pick 38, or not 38, but they had the um, they had a pick that they traded to Golden State because they knew that Golden State wanted to get Alan Smagulich. Smagulich may have butchered the name there. You know the point. They knew how badly Golden State wanted him. They took advantage of that. Golden State traded two future seconds to get up there a couple spots to get him. And then 
the Pelicans turned around and used those seconds in a trade with Utah to get Derek Favors. And Derek Favors is another great veteran who you can mix in with these young guys. He provides a great veteran presence. He's a very good big still. He can be a great complement to Zion Williamson. He'll start for them at the five. Only has one year remaining on his deal. I think, again, very important. He fits well as a front court mate with Zion. And he's going to be productive for them and provides a starting five for them who is very good. So you look at this Pelicans roster as a whole. This team is ridiculously deep. We look at the one. Drew Holiday, Lonzo Ball, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, Frank Jackson, who is very good. Uh, was very good in Summer League, was good for them last year. J.J. Redick and Josh Hart at the two. Brandon Ingram, Etwan Moore, Darius Miller at the three. Zion, Nicola Melli, and Kenrick Williams at the four. And then at the five, Derek Favors, uh, Jackson Hayes, and Jaleel Okafor, who played pretty well for them last year. I'm not crazy about him, but again, he played well when he was given the opportunity to do so for New Orleans last year. And you look at that team. That team is deep. It has a lot of guys who are playable in big situations. And most importantly, I stress it often, lineup optionality, versatility, and flexibility. They have that across the board. Drew Holiday, the one or the two. You can play Drew Holiday off the ball with Lonzo Ball. On the ball with Redick off the ball at the two. On or off the ball with Nikhil Alexander-Walker on the court with him. On the ball with Josh Hart at the two. Nikhil Alexander-Walker can play on the ball with J.J. Redick at the two. Lonzo Ball can play on the ball with J.J. Redick at the two or Nikhil Alexander-Walker or Josh Hart at the two. Frank Jackson is also good. He's going to factor in there and get minutes at the one also. You have six good playable guards on this team. Small forward, as I mentioned, that is Brandon Ingram's spot. Power forward is obviously Zion's. Zion is the franchise. He is the generational prospect that this team is going to build around. And I'm very interested to see how this group that they've assembled fits around and accentuates Zion's strengths. Behind Zion, again, Nicola Melli, I think that provides you a nice scoring stretch four off the bench. Derek Favors at the five, I don't think that Jackson Hayes will be that much of a factor this year. Remains to be seen if Jalil Okafor can be a productive player for a whole season in the NBA. But you have so many lineup options. You can even get a little crazy. This is a fun option to me. You could slide Zion down to the five, slide Brandon Ingram down to the four. You could play hard at the three with Redick at the two and Holiday at the one. That's a fun lineup combo that I think would be pretty interesting to see. The point is, is that Alvin Gentry has a ton of optionality with the five-man groups that he can run out there for the Pelicans at any given time. And they've created, through all of these moves and the players they've acquired, they have this team identity now where this team is youth, athleticism, and defense across this super deep team. As I mentioned again, they are also in play for any star that becomes available based off of the assets in terms of draft capital and young players they have at their disposal. And looking at them just for this season, I think that the Pelicans are a playoff team this year. I really do. I think the New Orleans Pelicans are going to make the playoffs, whether they're the 8th seed or the 7th seed. This is a playoff team for this year, 
And that's really only the beginning and starting to scratch the surface of how good this team can be long term. They took this offseason and gave themselves an incredible long term outlook and organizational reboot with a near perfect offseason. Just an incredible job with David Griffin at the helm, and everything is pointing upwards for the New Orleans Pelicans for the long term as a result of the incredible offseason they had. I cannot say enough good things about the moves the Pelicans made this offseason. Next, we go to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And of course, an offseason of upheaval and change for this um, for this organization. First, we start, obviously, I want to start with the Russell Westbrook trade. And I mentioned this in the initial podcast about the trade. I mentioned this in the part one of this podcast talking about the Houston Rockets. They got the return that they did from the Houston Rockets for Russell Westbrook more so because they were willing to take back Chris Paul's contract than they were as a result of trading Russell Westbrook to them. I had said, and this is something I said on Twitter and in my previous podcasts, I had always thought until this trade was made that any Russell Westbrook trade for Oklahoma City would have amounted to what would have been a glorified salary dump. And they were able to get in from Houston a pick swap in 2021 and 2025 and a first in 2024 and 2026. Uh, The one in 24 is top four protected. The one in 26 is top four protected as well. Then you factor in the haul that they got for Paul George, the 2021 Miami first unprotected that pick via phoenix via the sixers via the clippers it's really been passed around uh the 2023 miami first which is initially protected lottery protected but its uh its protections are such that it is ensured that it'll convey at the latest as an unprotected first in 2026 they have the clippers unprotected first in 2022 2024 and 2026 Pick swaps with the Clippers in 2023 and 2025, a future all-star in Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and a highly valuable, coming off the best year of his career, veteran tweener scorer in Danilo Gallinari. So, just looking at draft capital between the Chris Paul-Russell Westbrook trade and the Paul George trade, they amassed seven firsts, the two Miami, the three Clippers, and the two Houstons, and four pick swaps the two Clippers and the two Houstons, just in those two trades alone. And then you take all of that added draft ammo and you factor in that they've now, due to making themselves worse and going for this teardown rebuild, they've more or less, you know, allowed themselves to keep the first that they were sending to the Sixers top 20 protected this year and the first they were sending to the Hawks lottery protected in 2022 those will both just turn into two second round picks and then you factor in trading jeremy grant to denver for their 2020 first round pick and between now and 2026 oklahoma city possesses 15 firsts and four pick swaps that's staggering and to be frank they really just in terms of the sense of logically building out a roster and using your assets they cannot use each of these picks 
So that allows them to trade up in drafts as they want. They can target certain young players. They can be very uh, involved for trades in the potential scenario in which they end up being a good team. They have draft ammo to be in play for stars for trade. So you have an elite GM in Sam Prestino who now has a significant supply of ammunition in terms of draft capital to get the young players that he wants in the draft, to move up and down as he desires, and to be involved in any trade discussion that occurs as far as facilitating trades. If they end up being a good team um, quicker, they still have major draft ammo in the later years of this 2020 to 2026 range. So they have a lot to work with here, and they have an all-time staggering level of draft capital ammunition at their disposal 15 firsts and four pick swaps between 2020 and 2026 that's incredible and specifically looking at the paul george trade they did such a great job in leveraging the clippers need to get Kawhi and to seal the deal to get Kawhi by getting paul george they maximized their return by leveraging that need for the Clippers to ensure they got Kawhi by getting Paul George into this monstrous haul. And quite honestly, this teardown and accumulation of draft capital and assets, it had to happen anyway. Because the team as previously constructed was maxed out and capped out as a team that at best, at best, could win a first round playoff series. And it was super duper expensive to do so in a very, very, very small market. That team needed to take this route, even if the Paul George Kawhi Leonard scenario didn't occur. As far as Chris Paul with this team long term, I cannot see a way, and this I said this before in previous podcasts and on Twitter, I cannot see a way in which Oklahoma City will be able to move Chris Paul without attaching assets to it to entice another team to take him in. You know, you could think of maybe they could trade him to a team who has another bad contract that's a year or two shorter. Chris Paul at three years for $124 million remaining. Maybe, you know, you would think maybe they could turn him into Nick Batum from Charlotte, who only has two years at over $50 million remaining. But Charlotte just signed Terry Rozier uh, to a three-year contract at about $57, $58 million. So I don't think that's realistic. So, again, Chris Paul's still a good player. I think him saying he's washed, he's not washed, but he's certainly not the player that he was even in the year where Houston was a non-Chris Paul injury away from making it to the finals and probably winning. He's already declined from that point. What's he going to be in years two and three of this contract? So, to me, they have to incentivize another team to take him on by by attaching assets, which due to Oklahoma City's incredible draft capital haul, you would think that that asset would have to be some sort of draft pick or draft picks. Looking at the pieces they have, long-term pieces, Shea Gilgis-Alexander was the 12th overall pick in the draft in 2018. Shea Gilgis-Alexander gets overlooked in this trade because of the immense haul of draft capital received. Shea Gilgis-Alexander is a future all-star with great size, he can pass and play make well. He's a good defender, good mid-range game, can get to the rim well. He's just so solid across the board, has a solid, decent three-point shot already that has room for growth. 
This is a guy to me who's a future all-star. Danilo Gallinari is coming off of the best year of his career and will definitely be able to add Oklahoma City a first-round pick or a nice young player in a trade return. I can almost guarantee that. You know, I've said this before. It makes all the sense in the world to trade him to Portland for a first-round pick in Kent Bazemore. He's so good and so valuable to a contending team, there is no way that they won't be able to get a first-round pick and maybe even a young player with it for Danilo Gallinari. Looking at the nice young pieces on the roster, Darius Baisley, they picked him in the first round this year. I've said this before, I like him a lot as a super long, athletic player who's very raw but has great physical tools. You can mold him um, into the player you want him to be. Great physical tools, great athleticism, super duper young. And Oklahoma City loves them, that super athlete type of prospect. Hamadou Diallo, second round pick from 2018, super athletic, was pretty good as a rookie, good in the summer league also. I think there's a long-term role for him on this team. Terrence Ferguson is pretty much at the two, a nice prototype of a 3 and D player. Nerlens Noel can definitely be traded to some team for a second round pick or two at some point this season. Actually, right now, it's funny, the, the Oklahoma City Thunder are actually in the luxury tax right now due to signing Justin Patton. Uh, the first year is a very low guarantee. Years two and three are not guaranteed. So they'll definitely be under the luxury tax by season's end. Steven Adams and Dennis Schroeder, I, I think they're stuck with both of them. Adams at two years with 25 mil this year and 27 the year after that. Schroeder at two years at a flat $15.5 million cap hit. Again, using early bird rights for all of this salary information, I think they're stuck with both of those guys. I think this team is currently constructed, assuming without any other trades, is around the 11th to 13th uh, seed in the West. I expect them to definitely shed Danilo Gallinari at some point this year for a first-round pick and maybe a young player with it in return. But I think they're going to get worse as the season goes along. Again, they bought out Patrick Patterson. Um, they just traded Jeremy Grant. They're definitely going to trade Gallinari. See maybe if there's a way they could turn Roberson into a contract that goes one year longer and get a second round pick with it. You know, with how much capital they have, does that really even offer that much value? This team is going to get worse as the season goes along. So I think they're in the 11 to 13 range in the West, probably closer to 12 or 13. And I definitely expect a Danilo Gallinari trade for this year. And I'm very interested to see, ultimately, how they are able to trade Chris Paul and his contract. Because as I said, quite frankly, I do not see a way that he is tradable without adding multiple draft picks to him. Next, we go to the Phoenix Suns. And first, I want to start with their draft. So they made the move before the draft, the first move they made, to trade TJ Warren along with the 32nd pick to Indiana. So you would think there, okay, even though TJ Warren's a good player and pick 32 is a very valuable, very high second round draft pick, they're trying to shed salary and they want to be a player for D'Angelo Russell in free agency because we've known all along about how they value the need to add a point guard, how they don't have a solution in their minds at the point guard spot. So, they trade TJ Warren 
and his $11 million salary and pick 32 to Indiana. Okay, so they've cleared $11 million there. Then they trade down from pick six to pick 11, um, and in doing so also acquired Dario Saric. All right, they move down there, so the value of the salary that they're paying their first-round pick will be lower, and they get Dario Saric in there, who's a really good player. More on that later. But then they trade in to pick 24 with Boston. They trade the first-round pick that they got from Milwaukee for Eric Bledsoe in the 2020 draft. They trade that to get back in at pick 24, and in doing so, take on Aaron Baines's near $5.5 million salary and select Ty Jerome. So right there, Aaron Baines plus Ty Jerome is about $7.7 million in salary. They traded TJ Warren, who makes just under $11 million, with the 32nd pick attached to it in a move that would seemingly be made to clear salary cap space. So right there, just by trading in to get Aaron Baines and Ty Jerome, that makes their net savings by trading TJ Warren along with pick 32 to be just over $3 million. So the whole huge salary cap savings right there more or less were almost completely wiped away just by trading in there to get Aaron Baines and Ty Jerome. So they defeated the, their own purpose right there. At pick 11, which I just mentioned they traded down from 6 to 11 and got Dario Sarge also, they selected Cameron Johnson, who was projected by most to be a pick in the 20s or the very late teens. And Cameron Johnson is a guy who's a one-dimensional prospect, very good at that one dimension, which is shooting threes, has good size, but he's a one-dimensional prospect who really would have been a guy who would have been most valuable as being picked by a contending team who wanted to add a shooter. And they picked him 11th overall, ahead of a lot of other talented players like Sekou Dombaya, Nasir Little went all the way at 25, but even still, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, who went at 17, Brandon Clark, who went at 21, and many, 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 many other players who were very, very talented and should have gone before him. But Phoenix picked Cameron Johnson at 11. So their draft night summed up. They traded a good player and a very, very high second round pick, which to me is almost more valuable than having a super late first round pick because you get out of the first round rookie scale and can sign the player for cheaper. So they gave up what would have been a good young player and TJ Warren, who is a good player, to create space, which they then filled $7.7 million of by trading for Aaron Baines and Ty Jerome, and therefore traded TJ Warren in the 32nd pick just to save $3 million. Because they took up seven point seven. million of the near $11 million space that they created in the TJ Warren trade. So what's even the point there? As far as the trade with Dario Sarge and Cameron Johnson, Cameron Johnson, I just mentioned, a humongous reach. Dario Sarge, I like a lot. Dario Sarge is a very good NBA player. But what do you value Dario Sarge at in his second contract? 
What is he going to get in that second contract on the market? And is that a contract that is worthwhile to have on your books for the player that he is? You know, I really like Sarge, but I I genuinely cannot figure out what his value is for his second contract based off of the market of teams with cap space and him as a player. You know, I think in Minnesota, he kind of was marginalized a little bit and was put in a lesser role. You know, with Phoenix, I'd assume he has a bigger role, but... I, again, I just really am not sure what exactly you value him at contract-wise. Looking at the rest of this Phoenix Suns offseason, Ricky Rubio at three years for $51 million. I know they wanted to shore up the point guard spot, but this is too much money for Ricky Rubio. He's a nice, solid player, starting quality point guard. It's fine. $51 million over three years? For Ricky Rubio, come on. That's an overpay. Even though I like the player, that is an overpay. Kelly Oubre at two years for $30 million, with the first year being um, a greater salary, so it's in descending order. Get him in there for two more years. He's a good young player. They traded Trevor Ariza for him. I'm fine with it. Frank Kaminsky. Two years at just under $10 million. I guess that's a fine signing. I, I mean, sure, why not? Frank Kaminsky, okay. I'm not crazy about it, but all right. Then they make the trade that I talked about with Memphis, where they trade what could end up being two pretty high second-round picks and De'Anthony Melton so that they can save some money and then waive Kyle Korver and then end up with just Javon Carter. So more or less, they traded De'Anthony Melton Josh Jackson, and one or two high second round picks for a little bit of savings and DeAnthony Melton. Notice the thing here, they traded assets to save some money after they had made the trade in the draft to save money and then took up the space that they had created almost entirely. Notice how they keep getting in their own way with each transaction that they made over the course of the offseason. So we look at this Phoenix team. They seemingly were on a path to creating space for D'Angelo Russell at the beginning of the draft, but then they had to get Ty Jerome and hook up a lot of that space. And then they signed Ricky Rubio for $51 million over three years. They reached very much on a player that they picked at 11. They traded away pick 32. They traded away their second round pick for this year. They may have traded away their second-round pick for 2021 also. They signed Frank Kaminsky, who I, I, I don't get. I don't get that. I'm not crazy about Frank Kaminsky. He's not bad, but I don't understand the point of signing him for this team. You added Dario Saric, which is nice. I like Ty Jerome also, but it wasn't worth adding Aaron Baines to do so and to take up even more space. They took a flyer on Chick Diallo uh, as a free agent. Elio Kobo they have as a point guard spot also picked in the early second round in 2018. I really, really like Elio Kobo. But this team is the worst team in the Western Conference in my mind. They had a bad offseason. They were the second worst team in the league last year. And their big prize to show for it is Cameron Johnson. Not great. And then they overpaid for Ricky Rubio. And they took up salary cap space that could have potentially allowed them to get someone like D'Angelo Russell. 
And they traded away potentially three high second round picks in a row for including the one from this year they included with TJ Warren. A bungled offseason, a weird offseason. I don't, I don't get what the idea is or the, what these moves are. I really don't understand it. You know, is Ricky Rubio a needle mover? No. Is he a young star you can build with your core of Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and Mikhail Bridges? No. Is Cameron Johnson anything more than a 7th or 8th man who can come off the bench and shoot threes? No. Do they need Aaron Baines? No. Was it worth taking on Aaron Baines to get Ty Jerome? No. Even with taking up that space away, they still had the room to sign Ricky Rubio. They had the chance to create enough space to go after D'Angelo Russell and get a young star player that they could have paired with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton and Mikhail Bridges. And all right, that's a nice little group of four right there. But they just, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened here. There are pieces on this team that I like. DeAndre Ayton gets a lot of flack because, quite frankly, we look at the top four um, and top five of the draft last year. Luka Doncic is better than him. Marvin Bagley is better than him. Jaron Jackson Jr. is better than him. And Trey Young is better than him. He's still a good center. He's still a good piece. Mikael Bridges, I thought, was awesome. I think there was a very legitimate case to have been made between he and Kevin Herter for the spot on the all-rookie second team last year. The perfect 3 and D player. Uh, I think if he was on a playoff contending team, would be a contributor deep into the playoffs in a high bench role or a starting role right now. Dario Saric, I mentioned, I really, really like. I like Elio Kobo a good amount. They took a shot and checked Diallo. Looking at their draft capital moving forward, again, they will have gotten nothing out of the um, high second round pick of their own in 2019 or in 2020, and potentially in 2021. They don't have the first that they got from Milwaukee because they turned that into Ty Drome and Aaron Baines this year. So they have no extra picks in the first or second round coming into them between now and 2026. They are out in the second round in 2020 and potentially 2021 also. From 22 to 26, they own their first and second each year. They own their first each year from now until 2026. Looking at this team, again, the worst team in the Western Conference to me and a strange offseason that seemed to have a nice plan in the beginning but just turned into a questionable what's going on here, what's the plan here. Just a weird offseason by the Phoenix Suns. Next we go to the Portland Trailblazers. First move, a smaller move in terms of its importance Traded Evan Turner to Atlanta for Kent Bazemore. I like this for Portland. Bazemore's a guy who can be a 3 and D wing for you off the ball. Evan Turner really is best suited to be a guy who is creating with the ball in his hands. For Portland, having Damian Lillard and TJ McCollum, it's definitely much more beneficial to add someone like Bazemore who can play defense, who can shoot threes at a good level and be a bench player for them who will get minutes at the two and the three as needed. So a move that sort of fell under the radar a little bit, not a huge move, but I think it helps Portland a lot because it gives them a player where, you know, a large bloated one year left on the contract, but it gives them a player who fits what they needed more, a three and D wing rather than a guy who has the ball in his hands, doesn't shoot well, and is more of a guy who creates 
rather than a catch-and-shoot player or a defensive player. Now, we look at the rest of the offseason that they had. Getting Nasir Little late in the first round like they did was a steal. A steal. Little has a ton of talent, and I think he'll be a productive NBA player for a long period of time. In addition, it gives them a young player who, with the pick that they had, provides more value than any other player they would have been able to pick at that spot in a potential trade. You look at the other young players on this team, Anthony Simons, who they picked in the first round in 2018. I really, really like Simons. I think there's a lot of room for growth there. I think he's going to be a very good player. They've been really excited about him as far as things that have been said in the media. And also, again, we talk about if Portland really wants to just go all in for it and trade for a star. In addition to their first round picks, you now have two young players who possess a lot of value and intrigue to other teams in Anthony Simons and Nasir Little. Again, I really, really like Anthony Simons. I think he's going to be great. I think Nasir Little is going to be a good NBA player as well. Now, the big move I wanted to get into with Portland was trading Myers Leonard and Mo Harkless for Hassan Whiteside. So, I get their thinking in that they wanted to get you know, a big, solidified defensive presence who rebounds well at the five. I am just not that crazy about Hassan Whiteside. And personally, the pairing of Whiteside and Zach Collins at the five and the four, I really don't like all that much. And personally, I would have liked a Zach Collins at the five, Mo Harkless at the four pairing more than I would have liked Whiteside at the 5 and Collins at the 4. Because with Collins at the 5 and Harkless at the 4, you know, it gives you more shooting. It spaces out your offense a little bit more. I think I like Collins more at the 5 than I do at the 4. I think Collins, you know, he's a guy they traded uh, a couple years ago. They traded the two picks to the Kings that became uh, um, Justin Jackson and Harry Giles into Zach Collins. I think Collins is a guy who's a long-term starter in the NBA, and I think he is at the five, not the four. And you look at that four spot, they lost Mo Harkless by that trade. Al Farouk Aminu signed for the full mid-level exception with Orlando. They added Mario Hazonia to play in that stretch four spot, but the point is, is they lost shooting. Now, and Myers Leonard also a shooter, but they lost shooting. Now, they compensated for it a little bit, as I just mentioned, by signing Mario, Mario Hazonia. They also signed Anthony Tolliver, again, a veteran four who can shoot the ball from deep. So they kind of compensated for it a little bit there. But their shooting at that four spot went down a little bit. I think Whiteside at the five rather than Collins at the five, eh. I think Collins at the four, I worry a bit about their defensive ability at the four because you look at the four you'd have Zach Collins you'd have Mario Hizonia and Anthony Tolliver as your three main guys there you know I'm sure if they wanted to play Scal there they could a little bit I don't see that so right there those are your three guys Collins Mario Hizonia and Anthony Tolliver I'm concerned about their defense at the four look at the rest of the offseason they had Rodney Hood Getting him back in on a two-year deal with a player option for the second year at 5.7 this year and just over $6 million next year. 
I think that's a great signing. I thought of all the guys that they had who were free agents this year with Hood and Cantor and Aminu and Seth Curry, I thought that Hood was priority number one as far as getting him back, and they were able to do so. Going back to the white side trade, you know, I mentioned the defensive concerns at the four. Now, you would think, in theory, Hassan Whiteside at the five, his defensive presence would alleviate that defensive concern at the four. But again, and I know I've said it before, but man, a Zach Collins, Mo Harkless pairing would have been better than Hassan Whiteside and Zach Collins. So, slightly worse perimeter shooting, even though they compensated for it a little bit with Hezonia and Tolliver. I am not a big fan of Whiteside. I think he's a guy who, late in the game... It becomes somewhat of a liability. And I like Zach Collins at the five more than I do at the four. Look at the rest of this offseason. Damian Lillard signing that Supermax um, extension where by 2023 and 2024, he will be making over $50 million for that season. CJ McCollum also getting the Supermax extension. So Lillard and McCollum Locked in there for the long term. I love the duo of Lillard and McCollum. I love watching them play. I look at this team, and I think they're the sixth best team in the West. I think Houston, the Lakers, the Clippers, the Jazz, and the Nuggets are better than them. I think Portland now, and I talked about this when I talked about Anthony Simons and Nasir Little, they have the ability to go out there and add a third star. They have... The salary pieces to do so, you know, to me, and this is something that Zach Lowe from ESPN has repeatedly said, and I think it makes all the sense in the world. I think there's two options that make all the sense in the world for Portland. The first is Kevin Love. Now, that would cost more than the second option I'm going to mention, but you'd have Love locked in long-term. You know, Hassan Whiteside sitting there at an expiring $27 million salary provides you the ability to have a significant salary that's outgoing for a player, um making the money that Love is, making over $30 million a year for the coming multiple years. A package with a first-round pick, Hassan Whiteside, and one of Little or Simons. You know, that that's something that if you're Portland, you know, I, I think that's something that you, if it's, you know, if it's Nasir Little, a first-round pick, and Hassan Whiteside, I think you definitely do that if you're Portland. And then the second option that I think makes a lot of sense for them. It would probably cost less, actually definitely would cost less, Danilo Gallinari. And I've said this repeatedly in multiple podcasts, but a first round pick and someone like Kent Bazemore, who is making 19 million this year while Gallinari is making over 20, saves OKC a little bit to get under the tax, an expiring um, bench wing for an expiring tweener and Gallo who's a good scorer at the price of a first round pick asset. I think that makes all the sense in the world for Portland. So Kevin Love and Danilo Gallinari, the common uh, thread here, someone who can score for you as a tweener in Gallinari at the four or as a traditional big who can score for you um, in the paint, um, beyond the arc from three, and be an elite rebounder for you in Kevin Love at the four. Now the question of whether how good Kevin Love ages, whether he's a five or a four long term, that's a different question. But I think with Lillard and McCollum as the core of your team, with Yusuf Nurkic long-term, with Rodney Hood in there, I think Kevin Love fits perfectly. I think Danilo Gallinari fits perfectly also. So I would like to see Portland 
go out and make a move for one of those two guys at some point this season. They have the assets to swing a trade. You know, if they wanted to really go crazy, I don't know if they have enough if Washington were ever to make him available, but you know, maybe you could do multiple first-round picks, Simons and Little, and then Whiteside's expiring, and go out and try to get Bradley Beal, perhaps. Man, Lillard, McCollum, and Beal, that would be incredible. And Nurkic then also as your five. They have the ability now to go all in and get a third star to play with Lillard and McCollum. And if they don't do that, they have nice young players in Simons and Little who have potential to be long-term contributors for them, potentially as starters um, in the long-term in the future as Lillard and McCollum make significant, amount, um, significant amounts of money year to year. So overall in their offseason, Turner to Bazemore, a small trade I think will pay off for them um, in a good way because it gives them another 3 and D wing. I didn't like the white side trade. I would rather have kept uh, Mo Harkless and played him next to Zach Collins while Nurkic is out. I'm happy they kept Rodney Hood. They signed Pau Gasol as a bench depth big. They sort of compensated for losing Harkless, Leonard, and Aminu by signing Mario Hizonia, who has a player option in year two, and Anthony Tolliver. Long-term, looking at their draft pick capital, they have their own first each year through 2026. They have their second... Um, unless it is between picks 56 and 60 in 2020, and they have their second in 22, 24, 25, and 26. So they pretty much have all of their own draft um, capital besides their second in 21 and 23 at their disposal. They were able to ensure no issue or questions with Lillard and McCollum long-term. They have them locked up on Supermaxes. Six seed in the West, a very good team who is probably just a bit below those teams in the 2-5 to five range. So that probably makes them you know, unable to be another, um, to make it to the Western Conference Finals again. But I think Portland now has some options that they can significantly, that they can use to significantly improve their team or has some players that they can build to be cheaper long-term contributors surrounding Lillard and McCollum. So an interesting offseason with one trade that I didn't like, but I think Portland is the sixth seed in the West, had a decent offseason. I'm intrigued to see if they cash in these young players to get that third star like a Danilo Gallinari or a Kevin Love or maybe even, if possible, Bradley Beal. Next, we go to the Sacramento Kings. And the first thing I wanted to get into is the strategy they took overall this offseason. Now, they came into this offseason with a significant amount of cap space. And so had the option of really, you know, one, do they want to cash it in on a big fish or a, a large salary for a player like an Al Horford? Or do they want to use that salary and add depth across the board? And they chose the route of depth. Looking at the signings they made, Dwayne Dedman, they signed him at a three-year deal. Um, that is at $13.3 million a year. Uh, year 3 is not fully guaranteed. Got him above the mid-level exception. He was someone who a lot of teams uh, seemingly would have had interest in at that mid-level exception price or slightly above. But Deadman on Atlanta was a guy who really blossomed, is a good defensive presence in the middle, can shoot threes at a good rate, especially from the corners. So adding him... Um, whether he's your starter at the five, whether he's your first big off the bench, I thought that was a great ad. I think he's going to start for the Sacramento Kings team at the five, and 
you know, I think looking at it now, you would say, ooh, that's a lot of money for someone like a Dwayne Dedman, but I don't really think that it's an overpay at all. I think the the floor of his contract was set at the mid-level exception, and based on the market and the level of interest in Dwayne Dedman, that's what allowed his contract to get up to that $13.3 million a year for three years, and that three years for over $40 million total. Now, again, that third year is not fully guaranteed, but still, that's a good payday for Dedman. As I mentioned, I think he's the starting five for this team and has really expanded his game to be an effective three-point shooter in addition to a defensive presence in the middle. I like this signing a lot for Sacramento. Trevor Ariza um, at two years for $25 million, with the second year not fully guaranteed either. I think this is an overpay. This is the only signing that I just don't like really at all for Sacramento. Now, I like Trevor Ariza, the player. Nice 3 and D veteran. But is Trevor Ariza worth $12 million at this stage in his career? No, he's not. He simply isn't. I think that if they were, you know, they could have used that money less than $12 million. They could have given $8 million, $9 million, $10 million to Rodney Hood. I think that would have been a better use of that salary cap space. I, I mean, I like the presence of Trevor Ariza as a veteran, as a 3 and D player on your team. Provides high-level defense, can shoot threes, still productive. Again, the great veteran presence. But $12 million is rich. That's a lot for a guy like Trevor Reza. I think, honestly, you know, I, I think Trevor Reza probably is worth slightly below the mid-level exception, probably in the $8 million range. So I would have rather devoted a smaller bit of money and gotten Rodney Hood at a rate that would have been higher than what he got to re-sign with Portland. Corey Joseph, Sacramento signed him at three years for $37 million. I like Joseph a lot. You could say that in the context of how deep the point guard position is and how freely available year to year a backup point guard is and a productive backup point guard at a lower rate than what Corey Joseph got, you could argue that this contract wasn't worth giving out. I really like Corey Joseph as a backup point guard. You know, is it a bit rich? Probably slightly, but I'm still okay with it with the third year not being fully guaranteed. So I'm fine with this for Joseph. It provides you a very good backup point guard to your future superstar in De'Aaron Fox. Moving past Corey Joseph, we have the room exception used on Rashawn Holmes. I love Rashawn Holmes. An athletic um, defensive, a guy who can really finish at the rim and be an above-the-rim threat for you um, at the five. I think Rashawn Holmes is a very useful player for so many teams in the league. I still have no idea why the Sixers chose to re-sign Amir Johnson rather than just keep Rashawn Holmes instead of trading him for cash, which essentially is nothing. Rashawn Holmes is better than Amir Johnson by a significant amount at this point. Is Amir Johnson even a playable NBA player at this point? I'm not sure. I think he's washed. Anyway, getting Rashawn Holmes in there really as your third big at the room exception gives you even more depth, a great add at the room exception. A guy, as I mentioned, he can be a defender for you, he can be a rim protector for you, and he's a consistent above-the-rim threat who's very athletic. So I liked that add a lot. So we look at the space that they had. They chose, rather than going after a big fish like an Al Horford, they chose to go after depth. 
and used that space to sign depth guys like Dwayne Dedman, who will start for them at the five, Trevor Ariza, who will provide depth at the three, Corey Joseph, who will be the backup at the one, and Rashawn Holmes, who is your third big at the room exception at the five. Now, the next signing I want to get into is Harrison Barnes. They paid Harrison Barnes too much money. I feared that once Harrison Barnes opted out, that Sacramento was going to give him a big long-term contract to compensate for him opting out of $25 million for this year. They ended up giving Harrison Barnes a four-year deal for $85 million. And they structured it so that the per-year cap hit is in descending order. But we look at this team moving forward, and I think what this does, and I'm not the only person to have thought or seen this, but this probably gets in the way of Sacramento keeping both Buddy Heald and uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich long-term. Buddy Heald emerged and had a very, 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 very good season last year. His rookie contract ends this year. He is up for his second contract this summer. Bojan Bog- or Bo- uh, excuse me, Bogdan Bogdanovich is up as a restricted free agent this summer as well. If you're paying Harrison Barnes... 22 million, 20 million, and 18 million in years two to four. You really can't re-sign both Buddy Heald and Bogdan Bogdanovich. And personally, if I was Sacramento, I would rather have had Bogdan Bogdanovich and Buddy Heald than one of Buddy Heald and Bogdan Bogdanovich and Harrison Barnes. I think Bogdan Bogdanovich is going to be the one who is the casualty here. I can't imagine that after the incredible season Heald had last year with Heald and Fox and Bagley being your young three that's going to be the foundation of your team long term, I can't imagine that they would not keep Buddy Heald. So I think this gets in the way of keeping Bogdan Badanovich long term, and I don't think Harrison Barnes is worth this money in any way. I think he's a complimentary piece who's being paid as if he is a needle-moving piece, and that is not what Harrison Barnes is. And my other fear is, you know, Sacramento was such a fun team to watch last year, and it felt like the beginning of this process for them to really, you know, they started to scratch the surface and were only going to keep improving year to year. Now, although I like the depth moves that they made with the contract to Barnes and these depth signings being large financial commitments over multi-year terms, it, in a way, it may also kind of limit you know how much they are able to add to this team moving forward and potentially may end up indirectly capping them out as a mid-tier playoff team once they reach their uh, once they reach their peak. So that's just a concern of mine based off of the terms and length of these contracts for these depth guys they signed as well as the commitments financially that they gave them. I think really the one that, the two I don't like, I don't like the Harrison Barnes signing, and I don't like the Trevor Reza signing. Now the Trevor Reza signing, 
is only guaranteed fully for this year. So the per year, or excuse me, the length of years is not really a concern with the Riza. Harrison Barnes fully guaranteed at $85 million for four years. That's kind of an anchor. An anchor that the Dallas Mavericks just dealt with for the past couple years and traded to Sacramento this past season. So I am a bit concerned about that as far as anchoring them and limiting their ability to re-sign guys or go out and sign guys to add to their team to make them better once they are a playoff team. But we look at this team. I mentioned Buddy Heald, who to me is a burgeoning star. De'Aaron Fox is a burgeoning superstar. I was out on De'Aaron Fox before last year. Now, I look at the uh, the NBA, and I look at the most valuable young prospects and young players in the league. You know, let's look at players who are who are 23 and under and still within their rookie contract. You know, Ben Simmons, or Carl Anthony Towns and Kristaps Porzingis are now off of that group. So you have Luka Doncic and Ben Simmons. Darren Fox is probably third on that list right now. Now, I mean, take that back. Zion Williamson is probably number one on that list. So Darren Fox is a top five most valuable young prospect or young player that's 23 or under and still on their rookie contract. De'Aaron Fox is one of the most valuable, if we were to just do a ranking of trade values of players in the league, one of the most valuable assets and commodities in the entire NBA. He is incredibly fast, and when he came out of college, my thing with him was, great, he's very, he's very fast. What's his other above-average plus skill? He didn't have one. Now he can shoot threes, he's an elite passer, he can get to the rim at will, and he's really good defensively and gives a ton of effort there. De'Aaron Fox, to me, is a guy who I look at, and I think he is going to be a perennial all-star. And it is exciting to me to see just how much De'Aaron Fox can continue to grow, and with that, how much this Sacramento Kings team can continue to grow. Marvin Bagley, who they picked second overall last year, instead of picking Luka Doncic... Even still, despite the fact that he is not Luka Doncic, and they should have picked Luka Doncic, Marvin Bagley had a good rookie season. Better than I thought he would be, for sure. And the trio of De'Aaron Fox, Buddy Heald, and Marvin Bagley, if surrounded with the right pieces, I like that as your long-term foundation of your team. I like Harry Giles, who is in there at the five, a lot as a long-term piece as well. You know, now that they signed Deadman, he's probably a backup at that five spot. But when they played Giles and Bagley together last year, I really liked that pairing. And we look at the Sacramento Kings team now, just across the board, they're really deep. You have Darren Fox backed up by Corey Joseph. You have Bunny Heald. You have Yogi Ferrell. You have Harrison Barnes, Bogdan Bogdanovich, and Trevor Ariza. You have Marvin Bagley. You still have Nemanja Bielitsa, you have Dwayne Dedman, you have Harry Giles, and you have Rashawn Holmes. You also have Caleb Swanigan in there as well. I don't think he's much of a contributor at the NBA level, but it's an interesting young player in there. Um, They signed Tyler Lydon, non-guaranteed to a two-year deal. Uh, They drafted Justin James in the second round. I like the Sacramento Kings team. With that being said, I think that they are just outside the top eight teams in the Western Conference. And my concern, as I just said, 
is did they limit their ability to continuously add and improve their team for the long term? Did they kind of max themselves out unintentionally and indirectly as a mid-tier playoff team as a result of the Harrison Barnes contract and the strategy that they took as far as their signings this offseason? I am fine with the route of making your team super deep. You know, they're three deep at the five, two deep at the four, three deep at the three, two deep at the two, and two deep at the one. You have 12 guys right there who are playable, who are good rotation options. But it is worth questioning whether in two or or three years from now, whether they got in the way of their ability to improve and keep getting better with the amount of financial commitments they doled out. Really, to me, the one that really gets in the way there is the Harrison Barnes contract. Because again, I think they're going to have to sacrifice Bogdan Bogdanovich as a result. And it would be a horrific mistake if they were to not uh, sign Buddy Heald to his second contract. With the season he had last year, this guy is a beast. And next to De'Aaron Fox, that is a dynamic backcourt for your long term. But again, you have a superstar in De'Aaron Fox. You have Marvin Bagley and Buddy Heald. You supplemented them with a lot of depth. You're deep across the board. I think they're just outside of the eighth seed in the West. You know, I think them and San Antonio, who I'll talk about next, are the two teams right outside the picture right there at the 9 and 10 spot. But I definitely think, similarly to last year, that the Sacramento Kings will be a joy to watch this season and will be, once again, one of the most fun league pass teams to watch in the league. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that the new head coach of the Sacramento Kings is Luke Walton, Dave Yeager, out after that great year they had last year. Personally, Luke Walton, to me as a coach, I think thrives and does his best with a team of young players who he is developing, who he is cultivating and trying to bring them to another level talent-wise. The Lakers team last year was not a team for Luke Walton to coach. I think the Sacramento Kings team, with how deep they are, with how much lineup optionality and flexibility they have, with all the pieces they have, with the young players they have, I think this is an ideal team suited to be coached by Luke Walton. Next team up, only two more to go here. The next team up is the San Antonio Spurs. First thing I want to talk about with their offseason is their draft. Luka Samanich, one of my favorite pro- If You know, I take that back. My favorite prospect in this year's draft has every tool you could want in a prototypical stretch four with great size. San Antonio picked him at 19. There is no better landing spot for someone like Luka Samanich. I looked at him before the draft. I tweeted this on June 12th. I liked, I said, I was talking about Luka Samanich having great size, the ability to move well. He's athletic, a good passer. He's a good three-point shooter and is still improving. Take all that together. Every prototypical tool you could want in a modern stretch four, he has. And he's still improving. He's very skinny, so he needs to gain weight, is doing so. He's a smart player. He's a high IQ player. Again, talk about his ability to move well. He's a good passer. He can switch on to smaller guys and not be totally destroyed because he moves well. I think when you're a stretch four in the modern NBA, of course, take away the shooting ability. You need to be able to move well off the ball. And defensively, you need to be able to not be a liability when you're switching. He does all of this. 
He's still very young. There's room for growth, and he's in the best organization to facilitate that growth. Now, I know what we've seen in summer league and in tape of him from playing in Europe. He likes to um, have a post game, and he's not bad at it, but with his uh, skinny frame and in the NBA, I don't think the post game is going to be a factor for him at all. Um, really, again, with him, I, I like the comparison to a uh, more athletic uh, with the ability to pass and play make a bit version of Nikola Miritich. I just think with Samanich, there's every tool you could want in a modern stretch four. It's all there. Shooting at a high rate, there. Good stroke, there. Good footwork and can move off the ball, there. Can be switched onto smaller players and defend them, it's there. Can pass, it's there. Good basketball IQ, it's there. He was great in summer league. I love I've, his tape from playing in Europe was awesome. I think there's upside with Lucas Samanich. The perfect Spurs pick, and I'm so happy that he got to the Spurs at 19. I think he's going to be a tremendous NBA stretch for long term. So a great pick there by San Antonio at 19. Again, my favorite prospect in this whole draft. Fits a role the NBA needs in the modern age and has all the skills that you want in that role and is improving. They had the 30th pick in the draft also. They had Toronto's first as part of the Kawhi trade from 2018 summer. Keldon Johnson, a guy from Kentucky who was projected to go higher than he did, so a nice value there at 30. He was good in Summer League as well. As far as their free agent moves, they re-signed Rudy Gay at two years for $29 million. They really, at one point, they had a really good path to adding a lot of talent. So one of my favorite role players in the NBA is Damari Carroll, a tweener who's a great 3 and D player. That's a player every team in the league can use. They initially signed him right away at 2 for 15. Then a couple days later, they traded Davis Bertans to Washington, created a $7 million trade exception, acquired Damari Carroll in a sign-in trade with Brooklyn, and they took him in to that $7 million trade exception, gave him a three-year deal worth just under $21 million with the third year not fully guaranteed. So by taking him into that trade exception via the sign-in trade, that left their mid-level exception open. And they didn't have to use the mid-level exception on Damari Carroll. So they went out and they signed Marcus Morris at two years for just under $20 million for the mid-level exception. Unfortunately, he changed his mind. He reneged. He went to the Knicks. And so they went out and signed Trey Lyles at one year for $5.5 million with a year two on that that's fully non-guaranteed. So they did kind of get burned there, you know, to come out of this offseason with getting both Damari Carroll and Marcus Morris, that would have been really a fantastic set of additions for San Antonio. Now, based on the timing, Trey Lyles was the best they can do in adding someone as like that uh, stretch four type. So again, not ideal. They had the right idea with how they maneuvered with creating the trade exception by trading Davis for uh, Davis Bertans to Washington taking Damari Carroll in via the sign-in trade into that trade exception, then using the mid-level exception on Marcus Morris. That was really shrewd maneuvering there by San Antonio. Just unfortunately did not work out. Looking at this team, though, what's really interesting with the San Antonio team is this group of young players that they have assembled here. Derek White had a breakout year last year. He is excellent. DeJounte Murray, who they were going crazy over last year before the season, 
before he injured or tore his ACL and was out for the season, he's coming back this year. So you have Derek White, you have DeJounte Murray, you have Lonnie Walker, who they picked in the first round last year, who I like a lot. You have Bryn Forbes, who contributed and started for them this year. You just drafted Keldon Johnson and Lucas Samanich. Jakob Pertl, who plays at the five, who I like a lot, who they got in the uh, trade with Toronto for Kawhi Leonard. So you have this undercurrent of young players in Jakob Pertl, in Bryn Forbes, in Lonnie Walker, Lucas Samanich, DeJounte Murray, Keldon Johnson, and Derek White. And then you have your veterans in um, Trey Lyles, who is younger, but I don't want to put him in that group of those young players. So we'll say Trey Lyles in a group by himself. But then you have veterans like Marco Bellinelli, like Damari Carroll, like Paddy Mills, like Rudy Gay. And then you have your two top players in LaMarcus Aldridge and DeMar DeRozan. DeMar DeRozan in the last year of his deal with a player option for next year. So this could very well be the last season they have DeRozan. LaMarcus Aldridge is at 26 mil this year. His 24 mil for next year is not fully guaranteed. So they have DeRozan and Aldridge. Rudy Gay is signed for two more years, who I just I just mentioned at two for 29. Patty Mills is signed for two more years. Damari Carroll has two more guaranteed years. Marco Bellinelli has one guaranteed year just this year. Trey Lyles only has one guaranteed year just this year. So there is a path, should San Antonio want to just go super young, to doing so, because they have a nice group of young players in there, in White, in Murray, in Johnson, in Forbes, in Walker, in Samanich, in Pirtle. They have a nice group of young players there that they can build around with draft picks, with salary cap space. So I'm very interested to see what they do with DeRozan and Aldridge past this season. I think this team has constructed is very, very close to a playoff team. I think I'd say they're better than Sacramento. I would say New Orleans is better than the San Antonio team, so I would have San Antonio as the ninth seed in the West, just barely outside of that top eight in the West with Sacramento at 10 behind San Antonio. You look at their draft picks in the next six years, the only year where they don't have their own first and own second is 2022, where they do not have their second round pick. So they have their standard array of draft capital. I like DeMar DeRozan. I know he's a player that a lot of people are not crazy about, doesn't always show up in the playoffs, is not the most efficient player. But him and LaMarcus Aldridge, complemented by these young guys and these veteran players off the bench, I think it's a nice mix. And to me, I would like to see them carry out this mix of those guys and the young players moving forward after this year. But there is a path, should they choose to follow it, to going super young and pivoting to just the young players after this season. You know, you look at these young players on this team, Jakob Pertl I really like, probably on a true winning contending team as a backup five. Bryn Forbes I like a lot, Lonnie Walker I like a lot. I talked about Samanich as a prototypical stretch four. DeJounte Murray is interesting because this is the last year of his rookie deal, a restricted free agent after this year as is Jakob Pertl. So it'll be interesting to see the years they have and then subsequently what the second contracts that they can get look like. But as a whole, a great, fantastic draft by San Antonio, and unfortunately not through any of their own fault, were not able to carry out what would have been an incredibly shrewd maneuvering to end up with both the prototypical 3 and D tweener in Damari Carroll 
and Marcus Morris uh, with using your mid-level on Morris and creating a trade exception to take in Carroll. That would have been such great maneuverability and work right there. Just didn't work out. Then we also got to factor in the big coaching addition, adding Tim Duncan as the assistant coach to this team. And having him on that bench is going to be such a great tool and learning uh, outlet for the young players on the San Antonio Spurs team and the veterans also, because who better to learn from than one of the greatest all time in Tim Duncan. And again, just as a whole, I thought the San Antonio Spurs had a very good offseason. Had they been able to carry out the Marcus Morris acquisition through the mid-level exception, had he not red-edged on his agreement, this would have been an incredible offseason for the Spurs. A great draft where they obtained great value, re-signed Rudy Gay, and came out of the offseason adding Damari Carroll and Trey Lyles. If that had been Damari Carroll and Marcus Morris, that would have been incredible. Again, a good offseason, a very good offseason for the Spurs that could have been great had Marcus Morris stayed with them in signing with them. But again, I think they're just outside of that top eight. They took Denver to seven games in the first round of the playoffs last year. Again, another thing that's being overlooked. So I think people are down on the Spurs in general. I I think that, again, there's a great mix of veterans and young guys that I think it's a conducive mix to success. And if they want to pivot young after the season, they can. I don't foresee them doing that. I wouldn't if I was them. But again, this group of young guys who are all going to develop and improve alongside of these veterans, it's a great mix. And eventually what I think forms the nice basis of a consistent uh, six-seed, seven-seed playoff team year in and year out. So a good offseason for the San Antonio Spurs, great maneuvering, and a great draft. And lastly, we go to the Utah Jazz, who I think had a fabulous offseason. We talked about the Mike Conley trade from Memphis' standpoint in the part one of this podcast, but for Utah, the Mike Conley trade was great. Grayson Allen, their 2022 first, Jay Crowder, Kyle Korver, and the 23rd pick in this past draft. So Mike Conley, to me, is the perfect point guard to have next to Donovan Mitchell. I think the fit with Conley and Mitchell is so great, and I think Conley is a significantly better player than Ricky Rubio, adds more shooting, a better overall player, a better passer, a better defender, just a guy who is better in every way than Ricky Rubio. So right there, you've improved your team significantly by adding Mike Conley. Now, it hurt a little bit in that trade to lose Jay Crowder. Now, you still have the beast that is Joe Ingles to play that stretch four tweener spot, but you know I had been calling for them. You know He priced himself out by signing for what he did with San Antonio, but I thought that someone like a Damari Carroll you know, that 3 and D tweener type to replace the departed Jay Crowder, that would have been a great ad for Utah. Obviously, he was way priced out, but Thaddeus Young also would have been a great ad for Utah. But I look at this Utah team, they made that great trade for Conley where they didn't give up Dante Exum. They really value Dante Exum. I like him also. Great size. Someone who can play on the ball or off the ball. Defensively, you can play him anywhere from 1 to 3. They signed Ed Davis, who is the prototypical backup center in my mind, 
at the room exception for two years. One of the best signings by any team this entire offseason. Ed Davis is the man. Him and Kyle O'Quinn, they are the prototypes of a backup center. You look up backup center in the dictionary, it will be a picture of Ed Davis and a picture of Kyle O'Quinn. Great signing at the room exception for Utah. Bojan Bogdanovic, who is someone who really was really incredible for Indiana last year, picked up the burden after Victor Oladipo got injured, adding him at four years for $73 million, that significantly improves this team. So you come out of this offseason and you've upgraded from Ricky Rubio to Mike Conley. And in your starting five, instead of having Joe Ingles and Jay Crowder, you have Joe Ingles and Boyan Bogdanovich. So you now have a starting five of Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell, Boyan Bogdanovich, Joe Ingles, and Rudy Gobert. And then off of your bench, you have Ed Davis. Again, as I mentioned, the prototypical backup center in the NBA. You have Royce O'Neal. You have Dante Exum, who I just mentioned, again, is a great defensive tool for them off the bench. Jeff Green, a nice add on the minimum. I talked about them, I just mentioned, with Damari Carroll and Thaddeus Young would have been great scenarios to add to replace Jay Crowder if they had the ability to add those guys. They didn't. So Jeff Green, you know, a tweener who can score at that three or four spot, is he as good as Jay Crowder? Not even close, but it fills that type of player that they needed to add at the minimum. I really don't think much of Emmanuel Moutier. I know people said that that was a nice ad for them. I'm not crazy about it. I don't really think he's anything special, but they got him in there on the minimum. So look at them year to year. Their starting five is better. Mike Conley is an upgrade over Ricky Rubio, and Ingles and Bogdanovich is an upgrade over Ingles and Crowder. Now they lost Derek Favors. They had to trade him to New Orleans for two second-round picks. They lost Jay Crowder, they lost Kyle Korver, so they did, and they lost Grayson Allen. They no longer have Ekpe Udo, they no longer have Tabo Cephalosha. They went from Raul Neto to Emmanuel Moutier. Still have Georges Niang in there, he still have Royce O'Neal in there, he still have Tony Bradley in there. So they may have sacrificed a little bit of depth, but as a whole, on a talent level, they got better. And with this Mike Conley trade, they were very smart in how they protected their first-round pick that they're sending out to Memphis so that that pick is not going to convey until 2022, most likely. It's protected top seven and from 15 to 30 in 2020, and the same protections in 2021. So they are able to keep their first for 2020 and 2021, and therefore have the ability to add a role player or needed piece through the draft in each of the next two drafts. They need to add some depth to this team. That is their avenue to do so. They have a good stock of second-round picks should they want to make a trade at the deadline for a nice role player. You have Golden State's two seconds from the Derek Favors trade. You have an extra second in 2022-2023. So... They have the ability to use seconds to go out and trade for some players that may help them off the bench. They have the ability to add useful young players on the cheap through the draft in the next two years, and they have upgraded their talent level as a whole. Now, Rudy Gobert has two years left on his contract, 
But based off of last year, making All-NBA third team, he's going to be available to receive the Supermax, or excuse me, not available, eligible to receive the Supermax once this contract is over. Ricky or Rudy Gobert is not a Supermax player under any circumstance, but that will be an interesting negotiation between he and Utah in that 2021 summer. Very well, Gobert could be one of the big prizes amongst the many great free agents available in that 2021 summer. But again, just looking at the offseason that Utah had, they upgraded their point guard position, in my opinion, pretty significantly. Bojan Bogdanovic not getting enough credit for how great of an ad that was. Even if 4 for 73 is a lot, great ad. They were able to keep Dante Exum in the Mike Conley trade, made a great ad in Ed Davis. They do need some more depth. So maybe they'll have the ability to go out and use some seconds to add someone closer to the deadline. And if not, they'll have to hit in the draft in 2020 and 2021 to add that needed depth to their bench. But even though they sacrificed some depth, they added more top-end talent. Their starting five is better. I think they're a better team than the Rockets, and you could convince me they're a better team than the Lakers. I think Denver is better than them. Now, does that translate to Utah being a better playoff team than a team like the Lakers? Not necessarily, but for regular season's sake, you know, I would have Utah at three or four in the Western Conference. They had an excellent, excellent offseason. Their core is capable of really going for it and winning at a high level deep into June. What a great offseason by Dennis Lindsay and Justin Zanuck out there in Utah. So overall with Utah, they had one of the best offseasons of any team in the league. Truly an A-grade offseason, really added significant talent and boot and bolstered and boosted their ability, in my opinion, to contend and win in the playoffs and to be a better regular season team. And with that, that is the end of part two of this Western Conference offseason recap podcast here on After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. You can follow me on Twitter at Brad Clear underscore. Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. You can look for more episodes and check out all past episodes here on podcast.com or on iTunes by searching After the Final Whistle with Bradley Clear. Again, Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. Be sure to check out more episodes. Shout out to you, the listener. Once again, I am Brad Clear, and as always... Goodbye and good night.